0: Welcome. It's great to have you all here. You ready for Thanksgiving? Yeah. You know, Farmer Jones calls it Turkey Day. You know, I heard uh, Farmer Jones the other day went out to the turkey pen. He picked up one of the turkeys, started walking away, and uh, one of the turkeys left behind said, uh, "Where's he taking Tom?" The other turkey replied, "I think he's taking him shopping. Heard it, he, he said something about dressing." It's like.
1: It's
0: like so, yeah, enjoy Thanksgiving. Oh, man. Now it's time to hear from someone who always dresses for science. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight.
2: Wireless charging is pretty amazing. You might have seen this with your smartphone. Remember how there's a little pad and you set your phone on it and it'll charge it up for you without any wires? Well. Why don't we do that for everything? You know, we could use it for our lights, for our computers, our cars, our cameras, everything. Well, there are a couple problems. One of the problems is that you have to be really close to the charging station in order for it to work well. Another issue is that it's not very efficient. Quite a bit of power can be wasted from some of these wireless charging technologies. Well, researchers at the University of Maryland have a new technology that just might solve this problem. And in order to understand it, we need to first talk about something called anti-lasers. Don't you wish that time could run backwards? There we go. Yeah, like that. Well, that's about how anti-lasers work. Remember, lasers are devices that create laser beams. create that coherent light where the light beam is going up and down all together and it's all synchronized. Well, an anti-laser does the reverse. It takes a laser beam in and turns it into energy. Remember? Instead of taking energy and turning it into a laser. So let's take a look at an anti-laser. You can see how they have a laser beam going in on either side. And then instead of it making a laser beam, the laser beam goes in and creates energy in the form of electricity or heat. Now, this is really cool because all the physics that we use to make laser beams also works in the reverse time order. So if you run it backwards, the same thing would work if you had the exact same conditions, only backwards. And so that's the idea of an anti-laser. It's kind of like if you were to take a, Flashlight and shine it in the room and see where that light goes. Now imagine that everywhere that light hits was all of a sudden lit up and shining back towards your flashlight, the exact opposite. All of a sudden, all that light would come right to your flashlight where it came from. And that's kind of the idea of anti lasers. These researchers took that idea to a new level, though, of not just an anti laser, but a more complex environment. They had a chamber where they were using microwaves instead of laser beams. And they uh, bounced the microwaves all around in the chamber and it made a whole bunch of noise. There's no way you're going to do wireless charging there, right? But then they tuned the frequency and the wave that they were sending. So at a certain point where they had their antenna, it was able to harvest all of the energy, up to 99.996% of the microwave energy they were shooting into that chamber. That's amazing. And that's the technology that may revolutionize wireless charging. If you could set that up in a room, you could send out the microwave beam just right so it hits just where your computer is and charges it. Think of it another way. What if you were having the beam generated from your computer? It would go out, bounce all around the room, and make that noise. And if you were to take that noise and reverse it back to your computer, then you would be charging exactly where you wanted to charge. And that's the idea of this technology. Now, there's a couple problems. One of the big problems is that it has to be configured exactly right for the room. If it's bouncing or anything, then it won't work. So they have to tune it. And then if you pick up your computer and move it, or you open the blinds, or anything changes in the room, then it has to be retuned. But these are things that can probably be overcome. It would be amazing to have 99% efficiency of wireless charging all around us, wouldn't it? But this technology could also be applied not just to wireless charging, but a lot of other applications. Basically, anywhere where you have waves, you could use this technology where you can calculate the reverse and be able to, um, for example, we could use it for sound. We could calculate the reverse of the sound and make it so it sounds chaotic until, boom, right at that point where we need to hear it. And then the sound would be crystal clear. And a lot of neat applications like that maybe improve our wireless Wi-Fi that we use everywhere, or our cell phones. I can't hardly wait to see. And that's all the tech we have the time for.
0: All right, now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias.
3: So the question tonight is, what's the matter with matter? Okay, there's a lot of silly, cheesy pun jokes about the word matter, and we're going to go through all of them tonight, okay? (laughs) But no, matter. Matter is what makes up everything around us, right? And if we think about matter and we think about what is this earth made up of, well, a, a simple answer could be, well, it's made up of earth, wind, fire, and water. Those are the four elements. Have you ever heard that? Well, if you were studying science like a couple hundred years ago, you would be very familiar with that because that's what they taught was these are the four building blocks of science around us, the Earth. And, you know, it makes chemistry really simple. You know, we're going to learn about what makes up this planet, these four things. Well, I guess chemistry would be very boring because it's it's just these four building blocks and everything's made up of these things. Well, Then you start to dig in, and more questions start to come. Like, for example, so what is this fire? And how is this fire coming out of this earth, this log? And a fire is coming out all of a sudden? And why won't this rock have fire come out? Well, they came up with an answer for that, too. They said, well, it's called phlogiston, okay? And phlogiston is the name we've given to the magical substance inside of some some things have phlogiston. Okay, and when you're burning a log, all you're doing is you're letting the phlogiston leave. Okay, clearly the rock is low on phlogiston. Okay, so we're just letting that phlogiston escape. It's like magical fairies trapped inside. Go free. <laughs> but phlogiston, that was their answer. And they could prove it. And the way they proved it was we'll take this log, weigh it, and now we'll let the phlogiston escape through fire. And the log, what's left of it, weighs less. Uh-huh. So... We've let the phlogiston leave, and now it weighs less. Well, tonight we're going to talk about a gentleman named Antoine Lavoisier, okay, and Co., as you can see. <laughs> and I, it's good to show his wife because actually they were quite the team, and she was very involved in the science and research and pretty much all the drawings. I don't know if he wasn't a good artist or if she just really was good. She, she was good because their drawings are good, but she would draw out all the work that they would do. And being able to document that is really important if you want to be able to publish your experiments and your discoveries. Well, they start looking at these substances. And Antoine has a theory that things may not be quite as they seem. This fire that we're calling the phlogiston, what's actually happening? Well, he does an experiment. He takes a substance called phosphorus, and he combusts it inside a container. Now, combustion is basically a really cool word for burning. Okay. It's much cooler though. I did not burn the turkey. I combusted it. Okay? But he combusts this phosphorus, but it's all enclosed in a container. And he weighs it after and it's not lighter. It's not it's the same weight. So, but he he captured everything in there. He just had had it inside there and, and it was the same weight even when he was done. Well, th- then he took that combusted phosphorus and he went and weighed that alone. And it wasn't lighter, it was heavier than it was before. Now, how does that work? He burned it, nothing else was in there except air. Oh, maybe, maybe there's something that was in the air that the phosphorus pulled onto it somehow. Maybe Maybe there's more in the air than just air. Maybe air isn't the basic, most simple building block. Maybe there's things in the air. So he starts exploring that more, and eventually he takes on water. And him and his wife do another experiment where they take water enclosed, and they turn it to steam, of course through boiling. And they have this glass container it's boiling, and it goes up enclosed through a glass tube. And then he runs that glass tube through this iron, uh, you could bas- it's basically an old rifle barrel. Okay, so this iron tube. But the iron tube is buried in hot, hot, hot coals. Okay, So the the steam's going to go through this glass tube, into the iron, out the other end, in another enclosed side of glass where the steam will cool and turn back into the water. Okay, Now the water is going to go from here to there, and that's pretty straightforward. We'll just run this experiment. Well, they run it, and when they finish and get all the steam back into water, there's less water than when they started. Now how does that work? Well, it turns out... That he had just done something very important and unique because he goes and weighs that iron bar or that iron tube it now is heavier after this experiment and one more thing this steam that came out on the other side and turned into water came out with something else there was a new gas with that steam that didn't turn back into water there was more gas on this side and it it wasn't steam and he noticed that the, the weight of this new gas and that iron bar now equaled, or the change in that weight, equaled the amount of water that was missing. Now, what, what was happening here? Well, we know now that water is not the basic building block, that water is made up of oxygen and hydrogen. So as he sent this steam, water, through this iron tube, he basically was quickly rusting the inside of that iron tube, because rust is basically iron and oxygen. And so as some of that oxygen got pulled onto the ru- onto the iron in the form of rust, all of a sudden there were hydrogens now alone inside of that tube, and they came out not as water because they, didn't, they weren't connected to oxygen. They came out as hydrogen alone, hydrogen gas. And he noticed that it was lighter than air, this gas. And he also noticed it was flammable or combustible, Okay, And he he identifies that he can split water into these two pieces, oxygen and hydrogen. Only he didn't call them that. He called them one part of it is uncombustible and one part of it is combustible. One's flammable, one isn't, or at least the characteristics seem to be because that hydrogen, when he would light it, would really pop when he would light it. So he actually named them hydrogen and oxygen, and he would eventually – flipped this experiment around, and by combining these two gases together, he was able, with static electricity, to create water. And what, so what's the big point? I mean, that's some big stuff, but there's a bigger principle that he discovered and published, and that was the conservation of mass, the, the thinking that if you have a, a, some kind of mass, you cannot create or destroy the atoms that are making up that mass. When you're done with your experiment, you're still holding the same exact mass. So for example, with the water, if you do this big experiment he did, the number of hydrogens and the number of oxygens never changed. They were still there at the end. But the way they're arranged, or maybe one's connected to this kind of atom instead of this one, can completely transform the characteristics of that mass. And he was actually the one who predicted things like, what if you could make a diamond out of something like carbon? Because he noticed that things like diamonds had some of the same pieces as other things like coal or carbon. And he theorized that you could even maybe completely change a substance just by changing how those atoms are structured. So this, a lot of people say, broke open the real world of chemistry. And if you look at these four basic building blocks, eventually we would go from this is the element built structure to this is the element built structure. Um, So many more pieces that can be pieced together. So next time you're sitting there and someone comes up and says, oh, what's the matter? Just go, it's everywhere. (laughs) Okay, thank you.
0: Right. And now, introducing Roger Billings.
4: pretty well used up our time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the holiday thing. But it's good to have you here. <laughs> Welcome.
4: You. Well we have some exciting news. A brand new course mm-hmm. has completed filming this past week and it's, it's an amazing course and I'm so excited about it. I want to start out today by sharing with you the introduction to it. The instructor is one of our great instructor heroes, Mr. Levi Gauss, and the course is biology, and I'd like you to enjoy this wonderful introduction.
5: What is life? We can learn a lot about life by looking at this leaf. All of the processes and reactions that were involved in creating it Life is really what we're studying in biology. It truly is the study of life. Scientists for centuries have tried to figure out what makes life tick, from the smallest single-celled organisms to the most complex organism on the planet, human beings. And in between, we look at all of the different things that support life and make life possible. All of these things are under the umbrella of biology. And there's so many different facets of biology. We have the study of the human body. What allows us to get out of bed in the morning? What is it that allows our muscles to provide the energy that we need to move about our day? Genetics. Where do we come from? How do we pass traits on to our offspring? Why did we inherit certain traits from one parent and not another? Plants, photosynthesis. They actually are able to take energy from the Sun and convert it into food, which forms the basis of all food chains on planet Earth. No matter what you ate for breakfast today, that is converted solar energy. You are a solar-powered creature because your cells take the energy that was in that plant and convert it into a molecule that supplies all of your cells with the energy that they need to carry out their daily functions. And we're even gonna study the Earth itself, the biosphere, the sphere of life, From the depths of the ocean to the tops of the tallest mountains, we find life. All of these things contribute to our understanding of the world around us. And that's why I think biology is one of the most important and most interesting subjects that you can talk about. Because you are a living organism. You are evidence of biology. And so when you're learning about biology, you're learning about yourself, you're learning about how your body works, you're learning about all the fascinating things that are going on inside your cells, and how you fit into the world around you. I'm Levi Goes, and I hope that you'll join me on this journey as we explore the world of biology, literally, the study of life.
4: So what do you think, huh? I love Asela's courses, and I love that they're getting better and better and better. Uh, Levi is one of the really great teachers, and uh, his courses are some of the favorites of our, our students. This one is going to be better, better, better than ever. Now, the guys that need to finish editing these videos, it takes a lot of work to put a course out, so hopefully we'll, we'll have this published very soon. But the filming is done, and it's it's a masterpiece. And we, we have a goal in Aselus, and that is every time we create a course, we want to make it the best we've ever made. And that's what we're doing. We have a lot of courses, over 300, and we have a lot of courses that we're refilming all the time, so we try and keep him fresh. And he's back. And he's having a very bad day.
1: Yeah. Smitty has been smitten. <laughs>
4: that wasn't on camera, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't want anyone to know that my reflexes are that fast. They're fast. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so um, I have a little sign here that I, I wish we could zoom in on it. Maybe if I turn it just the right way. Tilt. There oh, we go. Cool. Everything starts with a dream. And I want you to think about that today. Everything starts with a dream. And it turns out that so much that we do in our lives, and especially so much that we do in science and in inventing, starts with a dream. And I'm not talking about the kind of a dream that you have at night when you're asleep, necessarily. Maybe sometimes. (laughs) But I'm talking about... A daydream, the dream that you have where you envision something, you imagine something in your mind, and then you figure out how to make it happen. And that's how a lot of the really good things in the world take place. Now I want to set the stage because very often the mother of invention is need or necessity. And I'd like to share with you a series of events, a true story that had some really interesting results and implications. And it starts clear back in 1816. And we're going to go back to 1815, but let's start with 1816. Did you know (laughs) that is the year without a summer? That's what it's known for in history. 1816, the year without a summer. And they say that because in 1816, they had the strangest summer. They did not produce crops. There was mass starvation throughout America and Europe and other places because they could not produce the kind of food they were used to doing. The starvation was especially for things like beasts of burden. A lot of horses died because they just had to keep the feed, or the, no, the food, <laughs> the food for the people, and not feed it to the horses. And why did they have such a strange year? Well, on April fifth, eighteen fifteen, the year before, there was a very large volcanic explosion over in Indonesia, and it it was the biggest that the world had seen in 1400 years, and we haven't seen anything like it since then, it threw about 10 billion tons of dirt into the air. And that dirt went in the high atmosphere and encircled the earth and blocked the sun. And it took a long time for all of that dust and and gas to be pulled out of the atmosphere. And during that period, we weren't able to grow the kind of crops that we were used to. And so a lot of horses died. And at that time, in 1816, horses were a beast of burden. A lot of people would get around by riding on horses. And all of a sudden, they didn't have enough. And so along came a German inventor going to figure out a substitute for the horse, and what do you think he did? He invented... I don't know. You don't know. i yeah. <laughs> He invented something. He came out with a way so people could get around, even without a horse. And lo and behold, in tribute to him, I just happened to have one. And uh, there you go. Oh. It's called a bicycle. And did you know that the bicycle was an invention? Bi means it has two wheels. A tricycle has three wheels Well, a bicycle has two. And it's interesting to me that bicycles can stand up with just two wheels because of gyroscopic force. When these two wheels start spinning, they don't want to tip over as long as they're going fast, which is why it's so easy to stay upright in a bike. You notice that when a bike comes to a stop, all of a sudden it's much more prone to tip over because you don't have the gyroscopic force of the wheels holding it up. Well anyway, the bicycle. Now I want to point out that when the bicycle was invented back in this time of 1817, uh, it wasn't invented quite In this complete form. In fact, I'd like to show you a photograph of the first bicycle. It was made out of wood. You notice there's no pedals. How did you make it go? Well, you put your feet on the ground, and you ran along. They called it uh, the running machine. (laughs) And there it is. You can go. But he was able to travel from one place to another much faster than people could normally walk. And it was really a great beginning, wasn't it? So the bicycle continued to evolve. It was quite a few years later when another inventor, and I believe he also happened to be German, got the idea of putting pedals that you can use to power the bike instead of just running along the ground. And of course, that made it a lot more useful. Once it had the pedals and once it could coast and once it could do a few of the things that the modern bikes do, and once they had tires made of rubber, so that it didn't vibrate you to death. It kind of, with a little sh- shock absorber, it caught on. And many, 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 many bicycles have been made, manufactured, bought, and owned. I've had my share, and, and they're really an amazing invention. Um, do you think there's anything we could do to improve on the bicycle, or do you think it's pretty well, as good as it'll ever get?
1: Mm, I think there's always improvement.
4: So we could take the bicycle as it exists today Uh and there it is, as it exists today and we could say, okay, there's something I would like to do to enhance it. I would like to make it better. And what we do to make it better could be our invention. And that's a lot of what the process of a science allows us to do because we could come up with ideas and then we could create experiments to validate and test those ideas. And you know, who knows? We might even be able to invent a very modern bicycle, very different than this old one. Maybe a bicycle that looks something like this. What do you think? Looks a little Uh, bit different. That does. In fact, if we were really clever, Uh Maybe we could invent a bicycle that didn't even have wheels. Of course, it wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs>
1: but, but yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Exercise.
4: Yeah, I, but yeah, you could get as much exercise as if you went somewhere.
1: Uh huh. I have an invention.
4: Yeah, we're, we're kind of short on time tonight. Can <laughs> it's we a save small it for light. next? It's a little invention. <laughs> it's a little invention. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well. The idea is we want people to have real inventions to invent real. Do you really have one?
1: Well, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. John, do you want to see it? Um.
4: <laughs> yes, I'll bite. I might bite. We, we my want invention might no. bite. Okay. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very pleased to announce that today, Dr. Paget has an invention. Mm-hmm. And and will you share your invention with us, please? I sure will. Okay, here we go. go. This is her invention.
1: Oh, Oh. hello there. Excuse me. (coughs) Hello there.
0: My
2: name is Tenna. I am a caterpillar. Of course you can see that. I have a name. It's a nickname. And it is Tenna. All I can do is
1: crawl. I have all these legs and I just crawl, crawl, crawl. I can see the ground is so close. But I have a secret. And the secret is... I want to be able to fly someday.
2: <laughs> I know, that's impossible, but I have a dream. So, if you
1: excuse me, I need to start getting to it. Bye-bye.
4: So, this is your invention?
1: Mm-hmm. That little that little guy, that little caterpillar there is Tenna, and that's my invention. There's, there's going to be more later. Well, I'm right sure you'll <laughs> win the
4: science fair for sure. Oh, yeah? Except I think you're disqualified. Yeah, when, when, <laughs> no you, when you become Dr. Paget, you can't enter the. This is my factor.
1: inspiration then, the But, but, you, tenna, can't, but yeah. you
4: redid it, and so what are you going to do with this invention?
1: This invention is going to inspire people. Of course, well, it's upon a caterpillar, it's already invented, obviously, but Tenna is my thing.
4: My thing. Mm-hmm. So, will we be hearing more about this? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. well, we'll That's stay tuned and see what happens to Tenna. It kind of feels good to have your own invention, isn't it? It's
1: it's fun, yeah.
4: And I know you well enough to know that you actually have a strategy, and you're going to do something with this. I am. And we're going to hear a lot more about it.
1: You are. And Tenda's going to become
4: pretty famous, (laughs) huh? Tenda's
1: going to be a big little thing.
4: A big little thing. Okay. Well, I believe that. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, good friends, good science friends, Really give support and encouragement to each other. I think it's a great thing that you're inventing this. (laughs) And I encourage you to go full steam ahead with your tenna.
1: With my tenna, Okay. Yeah. Okay.
4: Okay. And I expect to see some very good things. But, you know, um, when you create something and you start out with a dream, Mm -hmm. you imagine it quite often in response to a need, to a concern that you see, And then something comes together in your mind, and then you bring it into reality. And you probably go down that curve of optimism we talked about, where it looks like it's going to be so easy, and so you just do it, and then pretty soon you find out it's a lot harder than you thought. But you persevere, and eventually it happens. Then you feel pretty excited about it. Well, I have been pushing... (laughs) new technologies for all of my adult life and some of my youth. Mm -hmm. And many of my technologies are what people call ahead of their time.
1: That's true.
4: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, In other words, I invent something that the world might not be ready for for 10 years.
1: Yeah, they call your technology Or 20 years.
4: Or 50 years. I like to think that how far you can be ahead of what's going to happen in the world is is kind of fun. If you're too far ahead, you may never live to even see your technology come to reality, and that's happened in the case of many inventors. A lot of the things that Leonardo da Vinci saw uh, are happening 500 years later, but still, It was amazing that he could see the future and and predict some of these things. In fact, some say that Leonardo da Vinci, or maybe one of his students, was the first one to invent a bicycle, because there is a drawing on the back of some of his sketches of a bicycle, and they don't know, was that Leonardo's sketch, or was it the sketch of one of his students, or did some monk make it years later? We don't know, but it's interesting because he was able to see things far, far ahead. Well, back in uh, 1964, which was almost before I was born, (laughs) I had an idea that I thought was revolutionary, and it was to run the world on hydrogen. And hydrogen had already been discovered, and I learned in a science class that if you burn hydrogen, you get energy of course, but you also get water. And it just seemed so perfect to me, a way to run things like a car, a fuel for a car that didn't cause any pollution. Just think about it, no pollution, no CO2, no greenhouse gases. It was an idea that was very, very exciting to me. And of course, some of you know my story. I converted a little lawnmower engine to run on hydrogen, then a Model A pickup truck, and took it to the International Science Fair and uh, won a scholarship to college. And and then I started a company, and I converted many, many, many cars for many different customers, including the Department of Energy and automobile companies. Built the world's first hydrogen-powered home. Did a lot of things, buses, Postal, mail delivery jeeps, yes. all these different things. And here I am, still trying to become 30 years old.
1: That's amazing. In fact,
4: I'm still trying to become 30 years old. <laughs> at least And in here my I am behavior. with a
1: famous person. Very famous. That's true.
4: Well, thank you. I
1: am. You are. Okay. <laughs> true. But anyway,
4: it turns out that the world wasn't really ready to jump on hydrogen and there were a lot of technological issues to be solved which kind of kept the world from jumping to it and so years later in 1991 as my project to earn my doctorate degree at this brand new International Academy of Science I set out on a project to build a car that didn't have an engine but rather had a fuel cell that would use hydrogen to make electricity. And the advantage is the car would go three times as far on a charge of fuel. And I figured that would be the thing that really made it practical. And so we built the first hydrogen fuel cell car, and we still have it over in the lobby of our laboratory. But that car inspired a lot of other things. It took a few years. And now there are seven automobile companies manufacturing hydrogen fuel cell cars. And it's had kind of a slow start, and people say it will never happen, and other people say that it will happen. But in recent times, the excitement for hydrogen has started to really reach fever pitch, and a lot of amazing projects are being done. There's a huge hydrogen plan that is being made in Japan. There's a lot in Germany. And Saudi Arabia has just announced the biggest. This will be a hydrogen generation plant in Saudi Arabia that will produce enough hydrogen to run a whole city of a million people, everything. And the city is going to be a brand new city. They're building up from the grand up, ground up and it's going to be a very, very high tech city. And we'll be talking a little bit more about it. The hydrogen that they will use is what scientists are now calling green hydrogen. What's and that's that, interesting. What does
1: that mean?
4: Well, it means it's not gray.
1: <laughs> and not blue. And,
4: and the and guys that, are, that have put out the green hydrogen thinking are saying that hydrogen that's made from hydrocarbons, like from coal or from natural gas, is gray hydrogen because when you produce the hydrogen, you give off CO2. And you do that because you're consuming hydrocarbon fuels. But green hydrogen is made from renewables like solar and wind. And so there is no CO2. Interesting, wind blows when it's windy, sun shines when it's daytime, and not necessarily when you need the power. Mm -hmm. And hydrogen becomes the really feasible way to be able to store that energy and be able to use it when you need it and that's why they're doing it. So in this huge, huge Saudi Arabian project, they're going to be using an enormous solar farm and wind turbines and they're going to be producing hydrogen and it's going to make a real dent on on the planet and on the greenhouse gases and I think it's pretty exciting. It's starting to catch on more and more. There are huge projects around the world now being done in this direction. One project that is especially neat for me is the city of Los Angeles is going to bring in power produced in Utah, Hmm. hydrogen that will be pipelined into Southern California. I wrote a book. It's called Hydrogen from Coal. And when I wrote this book in the 70s, Mm -hmm. 1970s, I proposed that we build a plant in Utah. Really? And we make hydrogen and that the hydrogen be pipelined to Los Angeles and how it would eliminate so many, many, many problems. Well, the world wasn't quite ready for that project then, but, boy, I did a lot of work on it. A lot of figures.
1: Look at that handsome man in the back.
4: Uh, There's no man. That's the front. (laughs) That's the front. Okay.
1: Let's get back to 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 the subject, we?
4: Anyway, it's really exciting to me to realize that this idea has found legs after just 50 years.
1: That's amazing.
4: Yeah. And so uh, to make it more interesting, the place that I propose that they actually build the plant to produce the hydrogen in Utah was a place called the Kaparowicz Plateau. In reality now, they've decided to move the project just a little bit away from Kaparowitz over to a place in Utah called Delta, Delta, Utah. And that's where they're gonna build the big hydrogen plants. And you know, that's kind of fun for me because Delta, Utah is the place that my dad was born.
1: That's yeah, really neat. So
4: I'm sure it's all tied into the I'm hydrogen sure it has somehow. To, it
1: has to but be. it's fun
4: to think that <laughs> that project's going to happen. Yeah. And they're going to make the hydrogen in the beginning. They're going to make gray hydrogen using hydrocarbons. And then they're going to transfer over completely to renewable energy sources, solar and wind. And since the sun doesn't always shine when they need it, since they need power at night, etc., They're going to store the hydrogen. They need to store enormous quantities of hydrogen. Where are you gonna store all that? I don't know. And they found something very interesting. Underneath Delta, Utah, there's some very strange domes full of salt, salt domes. And they're enormous. Natural? Natural. Natural salt. They're like 2,500 feet below ground to where it starts, and they go down for over a 1,000 feet. The This big salt dome Mm -hmm. is so big that they're going down there and creating little pockets, self-hilling pockets, where they will store hydrogen. And the pocket will store enough hydrogen to run a million cars. That's how big it is.
1: The salt will actually store the hydrogen?
4: The salt becomes the container. They take the salt out, they dissolve the salt out, and leave a pocket, a hole. Uh And the salt then becomes the container. And they will be able, in one of these salt pockets or bottles, they'll be able to store enough hydrogen to run a million cars. That's a lot of hydrogen. And yet, in that one salt dome, they have room to build 100 of those bottles. Oh, goodness. So that means they could run 100 million cars Of course, they won't run just cars, they'll run cars, buses, trains, homes, factories, Mm -hmm. electricity. That's pretty exciting, isn't it?
1: It's amazing.
4: Uh, Now just, if you can, stop and imagine that you had a dream Uh and uh, when you published your dream, people said, that'll never happen. And then just a short 50 years later, (laughs) that's <laughs> true. A short 50 years later, they realized, you know what, that was really a good idea. And so now they're going to do it.
1: So can I see that book for a minute?
4: Uh, right now I'm kind of busy with it.
1: <laughs> so for all of you oh, who wait, don't believe wait, wait, me wait, if wait. you zoom up, see, that is the handsome man I was talking about. This is, this is proof of the dream. Hmm.
4: Did you invent the book, too? No, okay, but I think it's you. amazing. I'm working on no invention. I call it manners. <laughs> okay. Thank you. No, thank you for sharing. Okay, But it is exciting, <laughs> and it's exciting that so many other hydrogen things are happening. It is exciting. And uh, we are starting to see a lot of The inventions that my team and I made clear back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s are starting to be needed by society. We have a new program here in Kansas City where the electric utility has a lot of wind energy and things at night that's going to waste because no one can use it and they don't have a way to store it. So they're saying, you know, electricity costs, what electricity costs, but... If you'll buy electricity just between midnight and six a.m., we'll sell it to you for four and a half cents per kilowatt hour. That's really affordable. It is. But what do you you know, what are you gonna do at midnight to six a.m.? And the idea is you're gonna use that really affordable energy to make hydrogen. But you need equipment that can make it very efficiently, very economically at pressure and store it and and we developed all the pieces to be able to grab that off-peak power and to make it very, very commercial. We have the technology that we can make a unit that you could install at your home and a storage system it's very affordable that you could bury under your, your backyard garden or under your lawn. And then you would be able to turn on this system and you would save more than half on your electric bill. Almost two-thirds, and it would happen immediately. Or it could be used for hotels or for big companies or for whole cities. And so we're now realizing that we need to get these technologies that we've developed into production. Now, interestingly, my very first hydrogen patents came out clear back in the 70s. -hmm. Do you know a patent lasts for about 17 years Mm -hmm. and then anybody can use it? And most of the hydrogen cars that you'd ever read about are using technologies that I patented. But the patents have expired, and so they don't send me royalties because, of course, they're not required to. Well, a lot of the technologies that I've been developing, I've never published. Hmm. I have never made disclosed publicly, and no one else seems to have invented them because no one else has published them, and so now, I'm preparing to pile a whole bunch of pads and put these new technologies into production. Exactly. And I think hydrogen is going to change the world that we live in. Exciting. We talked a little bit about uh, air protein. Mm-hmm. This is protein that you grow. This is food, very healthy food that you can grow. And all the energy comes from hydrogen. That's and, you know, uh, we, we talked about in the biology thing how we are... Solar-powered creatures. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that uh, if you have this air protein in your diet, then you're hydrogen-powered creatures.
1: Say, I like that. Oh,
4: that's that's going to be good. Like both of so them. So <laughs> that's going to be really fun. Now let's get back on track here. Okay. We talked about building a hydrogen car, mm-hmm. and so a lot of you voted and. And we took all of the votes and we went back to our amazing designer, uh, Ryan, Uh and we we told him what you said. And now we want to see a more developed prototype of the car. And ladies and gentlemen, there it is. That is the Billings Fuel Cell car. And as you can see, it's enclosed Uh so that you can drive in stormy weather without getting wet. It uh, has some pretty aerodynamic lines, but it's, it's made to be a urban car. It's got room for a couple people in the front, one person or a couple smaller people in the back, mm-hmm. and room to haul around your groceries and things. And just think, what if this car could be operated at a cost of maybe half of, an, of a normal car? It'd be really thing. And whoever were to use this car would be able to say, and I am supporting a green economy, energy economy, no carbon dioxide, no greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it would be kind of a neat thing. Really neat. Now, I want to bring this image of the car back up again. I want you to look at it because tonight I need your help. Uh, I actually do plan to build this critter. Mm And I think I've got the hydrogen equipment for it figured out. But it needs a name. It does. Now, uh, I thought, you know, kind of looks like your invention. You know that uh, Caterpillar of yours? So yeah, maybe maybe we'd call this car Tana. call Tana. Tana? Tana? Tana. Okay, maybe it could be Tana.
1: Like we antenna.
4: Um, I need to have the right name for it.
1: kind of looks like uh, a Tana. I looked
4: at it and I thought, well, you know, it's kind of got a big round head. Maybe we would call it. The Billings Bumblebee.
1: <laughs> it, that would work, too. Yeah, would. The BBB.
4: But I need a name. You know, a catchy name is going to have a big impact for marketing. Uh, I wonder how many people watching right now are someday going to drive a car like that.
1: Well, I want to. Look, and it would
4: be real yeah. neat if it could be a car that would really be affordable so that people that are just starting out can afford a car like this. And I hope it could be a car that would be renewable, not just in the fuel system. I have this idea that uh, we might be using the Earth's resources better if instead of buying a car and then a couple years later scrapping it and buying another car, maybe it'd be better if we could make the car reinvent itself every few years so we got a new car without starting over. The hydrogen systems, the fuel cell, the hydrogen storage, all of that could be used and used and used. Mm -hmm. But we like new cars. Uh, Some people say there's about a 30-month new car itch. You get a new (laughs) car, and about 30 months later, you're itching to get a a new car. Are you like that? (laughs) No, I know some, though. (laughs) But it is fun to have a new car. And so if we look at the Billings Bumblebee again, What if every 30 months you took the car into the dealership and they kept it for two days and when you came back you had a brand new car built around your old one? What if these things just came off and were recycled and you get a brand new style, brand new colors, brand new car smell? That's just a spray. (laughs) (laughs) But just think, what if you could do that? And then we wouldn't need to mine all of the Copper that's used in the motors and all these different things in the earth, we we could leverage them, and they'd be available for many, many, many generations to come. What do you think? Do you Let like that fun. idea? You got
1: names coming in.
4: We're we getting names already. Yeah. Okay. What are some of the names one we're One is you
1: could call it the Hydrocell.
4: Hydrocell. Hmm. Wait. Wait a minute. That's a good one. Yep. Hydrocell. Who whose idea was that?
1: That was Carter.
4: Carter. Thank you. Hmm. All right, so far, out of all of them that have oh, come oh, in tonight, Peyton. Peyton. My bad. So far, that's my first choice.
1: Okay. Carters? Peyton. Okay.
4: Hydrocell, yeah. like that. What else? This one's Carters. Oh, this one is really uh-huh. Carters. Okay.
1: The Billings Power Bullet. <laughs>
4: A Power Bullet. Mm-hmm. The Billings it's silver. Bullet. You know what? That might catch the on. The
1: Billings Bullet.
4: That's The fun. Billings Power Bullet. The bullet. So we call it, that's my baby. Yeah, <laughs> that's my yeah. baby. These guys are good. Um, you know, when you have an invention, branding, marketing is very, very important. You want to have the best technology, but technology alone won't win the day. You have to figure out how to market it. That's true. a big part of making something happen.
1: Did you notice that on that car it had those tires that we were talking about that um, aren't inflatable?
4: Non-inflatable tires. Yeah. Yeah. I I want to point that out. So one of our amazing contributors, watched a couple weeks ago, wrote in and suggested all of these ideas for the car, all of which were, we're trying to figure out how to incorporate. But the suggestion was, how about tires that won't go flat? And, you know, we could just make still tires, but then it would shake us to death because those... Inflated tires are like shock absorbers and they smooth out the ride. But if you look here, we've got the flexible tires, but they can't go flat because they're not inflated with air. And I think that is a really good idea. Thank you for pointing it out. What's that smile?
1: I like your students. They have really fun names. I like
4: the students too. Sellers so so has the best students.
1: Ricky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know this, Ricky but she likes the bumblebee. It's a darling name, she loves bumblebees.
4: The bumblebee. Mm-hmm. You know what, we could have uh, maybe the BB, BB. You know,
1: mm-hmm. the bullet,
4: and bumblebee, and it'd just be different paint jobs.
1: Yep, it <laughs> If you have
4: big re- yellow and black stripes, that would be, well, this is gonna be fun, isn't it?
1: Then Alexander likes the hydrogen 3000.
4: 3000? 3000. 3000. I wonder why 3000? Is that oh. as top speed?
1: <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> He's dreaming big, then.
4: Ah, it's pretty exciting, it is. isn't it? Yeah, it's really fun. Okay, well now, uh, to make a hydrogen fuel cell car, we'd actually put electric motors probably on the two front wheels, and then we would use the fuel cell to make the hydrogen on demand. And if you were to install this at your home and plug it in you could actually have your own solar collector array wow. at your yard, and so you would make all of your own hydrogen. And then if you went on a trip, mm-hmm. let's say you were gonna go cross country, so you pull into a refueling station, they could have their big giant solar array or other source, and they would be able to fill your tank in just minutes instead, you know, on some of the electric cars, if you wanna do a cross country trip, you pull in the gas station and spend a few hours while the battery's recharged, because it takes them a while whereas the hydrogen tank can just be filled up like that. I love it. So it's, it's exciting. kind of fun. It's so exciting. Well, it is exciting to invent something. It's exciting to take a problem like global warming, a mm-hmm. big one, and to figure out a way that you could make a difference, not just like one person's little incremental difference, but a difference that could be used by people all over the world that would really have an impact on the problem. And I realized, even when I was still very young, that if I have a solution to global warming, and I tell everybody, "Okay, get your checkbooks out. We're going to solve global warming. People won't write out the check. So I have to have something else. And that's why we had to have the fuel cell. With it just running hydrogen in an engine, it was going to cost more to operate. But with hydrogen running through a fuel cell that's so efficient, they can actually save money by running the fuel cell car. So it's got to solve the big problem, but it's got to kind of be enticing Mm -hmm. to people. You say, okay, we're going to solve global warming, buy one. They say, well, let me think about it. You say, and it's going to save you half your fuel cost. Okay, give me two, a bumblebee and a BB. Mm
1: -hmm. So are they reliable? Because... You know, that's
4: one of the nice things about fuel cell technology. Inside the fuel cell, there are no moving parts.
1: No moving parts.
4: And we have fuel cells that have been operating since the 90s, and they're still running fine. So I think we can make these very reliable. Now, cars need maintenance. I mean, the tires, the wheels, the brakes, uh, they need maintenance. But I think we can make these be one of the most reliable cars that have ever been made. Because no. we get rid of the engine and all those moving parts, which is kind of exciting. Well, so let's get back to dreaming dreams. Okay. The goal that I have today is to get somebody here to dream a dream mm-hmm. and to do it seriously. I want to convince you, and by the way, it's because I'm right. That's why <laughs> you should believe me. I want to convince you that you have within you the power To be able to dream up something this world has never seen before. And yes, you might have to dream up a lot of things before you get one that's really the right one for you to do. But you can do it, and you can make a difference. We need to dream. I want to bring up my little plaque again, see if I can get this thing to work like before. Everything starts with a dream. And you know what I think, Dr. Uh, Page? I think too many people aren't dreaming the dream. They're not starting with the dream because they don't realize that they can. They don't realize that their dreams can come true. I'm no different than you or them. We're, We're just people. But the people that have dreams are the ones that are changing the world. And the ones that have dreams are the ones that choose to. So I'm just saying, choose to. Choose to. You know, when I was young, my dad told me something. He said, Roger, follow your dreams. And in that spirit, I want to leave you with this thought. My mom said, follow your dreams. So I went back to bed. Thank you. We'll see you all next week. All right.
0: well, thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll see you next week.